This is John Shannon with Radio Free Galisteo, and today I am speaking to Peter Balwanian. Peter is the producer of the documentary feature film, The Desire to Live. This film, how long has it been out now? Uh, we released it in 2021, uh, November, and it started doing the festival circuits from that point on. So it's been out for over a year. And during that time, it's won 136 awards from 72 different film festivals worldwide. And what we're going to find out today is what it's all about. Peter, can you just give us a quick overview of the desire to live? And uh, then we can start really speaking about the issues that are presented therein. The desire to live started uh, the week after December treaty of 2020 between Azerbaijan and Armenia over the region of Artsakh. Basically, we started filming. Uh, every week we would release an episode on YouTube, which started our web series. And I did that for a full season and then a second season. And then the idea of putting together a feature film documentary for the festival circuit came. Uh, that's when we put together the feature film documentary. And basically, the film itself documents the people living post-war of the uh, region of Artsakh, which is also recognized as Nagorno-Karabakh. Mm-hmm. Uh, people that are the forgotten people, basically, in back in 1991, they democratically elected themselves to be sovereign state from Azerbaijan, State Republic of Russia. And but from that point on, have been facing uh, several uh, cases of either uh, mass murders, ethnic cleansing, uh, wars, and have survived and struggled through. And the film itself is their voice, is their stories, because these are the people that never really were heard by anybody. And we figured we'd we'd go in and go from town to town. Uh, my director is a native uh, born and raised in Artsakh. So she basically had the brilliance of being able to talk to them and and uh, just get them to reveal their stories. You know, they've lost their, their kids, they've lost their husbands, they've lost their fathers in the stories. And each one of them tells them uh, in a different way and how it's affected them and how they're trying to survive through. And this is all documented from December, actually January 2022, uh, 21 all the way till the first season went all the way till uh, 15 weeks because we would we would actually document and then uh, put release the episodes right away and then another 12 episodes for the second season so we're talking about a six month period of uh, filming and documenting and then and then putting it on on the screen and then eventually filming for the feature documentary. So, you know, this process went on and we did the third season afterwards. So I've been I've been filming in that region for now two years. That's basically uh, now two years and two months since the treaty. And uh, for 60 days, it's the blockade. So now it's a different problem that we're dealing with over there. And to be clear and for everybody's benefit, uh the people in this region are ethnically Armenian. Yes, a hundred percent Armenian. There's there when they did the vote back in 1991, 99% of them voted to separate. So you're we're talking about overwhelming numbers of Armenians that lived in the region and that have lived in the region for centuries. 
They are the true indigenous people of the region. They don't know any other place. They've been there from one generation to another. Uh, basically, even under the Russian regime, the Armenians live there. Even under the Ottoman regime, the, the Armenians live there. They've just been living there since uh, every, and we historically can remember or have archived. Now, I, I'm pretty sure a lot of Americans, I wouldn't, <laughs> I'd hesitate to say most, but a lot of Americans are familiar at least with the uh, the history of the region uh, regarding at least the the Armenian genocide that happened uh, uh, around World War One. This is actually a separate issue, but are they somehow connected historically? I think they're very connected. I think mm-hmm. the genocide that started in the turn of the century, committed by the Ottoman Turks, it obviously stopped at the end of World War One because. Uh, uh, we don't really know. Uh, they, tr- they, they ethnically cleansed pretty much all of uh, Eastern Turkey that is presently Eastern Turkey from Armenians. So the, all of the old Armenian lands were all given up and the people will, were either sent out to the desert or were killed. Back then, there was a million and a half of them counted that were murdered. We're talking about, you know, women, children, you know, old folks, everybody, anybody, priests. It was just a uh, annihilation of a population. And then afterwards, it continued on because it never really was accepted by the Turkish government that a genocide was committed. And then you also had Azerbaijan formed right next door. So what happened is that Armenia, that ended up holding on to a small piece of land, is flanked on one side by Turkey and the other side by Azerbaijan, two hostile populations that for some reason have created Armenia phobia, that they see Armenians as subhuman. And for a hundred years now, Armenians have been in the hands of the people, their neighbors, that with hostilities. And they and the genocide, the physical genocide might have stopped in the 20s, but then the uh, the, the cultural genocide continued because they continuously destroyed Armenian uh, artifacts, buildings, churches, history. And now that we live in the digital world, we deal with it right away. It's that the erasure of Armenian history is ongoing. So that for us is still the genocide that continues. And then obviously, Azerbaijan doesn't recognize the genocide that happened. They believe uh, it's a hoax. Uh, So this whole thing seems like it's all one big genocide that still continues and today there's a threat of another one of 120,000 people that are in Artsakh that right now are in the hands of either the Russian peacekeepers so-called Russian peacekeepers and the Azerbaijani government so this is almost just a smaller scale version of what happened uh back in the the 19 teens correct Correct. Definitely. It's a continuation because it's it's never really stopped. That was that's the thing I've researched is that it's always continued. Hatred was always brewed. And this whole idea that Armenians don't belong in that region or don't deserve to be in that area is common amongst most of the people I end up interviewing. That's from the Azerbaijani side. Now, it took the U.S. A, quite a long time to finally recognize that original genocide in Armenia. They seem to be, at least the Congress seems to be taking steps 
periodically to to either recognize and or educate the public about what happened then. What's happening with regard to this current situation? Is the U.S. Congress in any way being helpful? What sort of recognition uh, does the has the U.S. government given to the problem? When the war in 2020 happened, the U.S. stayed out of it completely. They basically were absent. And uh, yes, COVID was everywhere and every government was dealing with their own problems. But for some reason, we had no media coverage at all throughout the war. The war lasted 45 days. It was pretty brutal. I would say out of the 5,000 plus that were killed on the Armenian side, the average age of maybe 90% of them was between 18 and 20. So we're talking about kids that were just a generation of children that were just taken away. No experience in the military, no experience with God. You know, they just had to protect their, you know, lands at the time. And then the U.S. somehow, again, absent all the way through. And then Russia came in. Uh, Putin came in like he's the gladiator and he created this peace treaty, uh, making it sound like uh, he's going to send 2,000 peacekeepers and make sure that the, the people in Artsakh are protected. And the one road that basically links to Armenia, because that's the only road that brings in any food, medication, any type of equipment that the, that the country or at least the state or the people need, was going to be protected by the Russian peacekeepers. That was part of that treaty that they signed back in December 2020. And uh, at this point, the United States did come to uh, Armenia's rescue, I believe, back in September, because I was in the Yerevan in September working on my new documentary with my filmmaker in Artsakh. And uh, when I got there, basically the uh, American, American um, embassy that I was dealing with for passports right away informed me that I shouldn't be visiting certain parts of Armenia. And I knew right there there was issues. And, and again, the day after, uh, that was the first time that they officially attacked the Armenian border, Azerbaijan. And for a day, they fought. And Armenians lost another couple of hundred soldiers uh, trying to protect the border. And then there was an imminent threat from both sides for the next few days that they were going to attack again. And literally trying to take half of Armenia away because the threats were made clear that if Armenia didn't give them the land, they would take it, which they, they referred to now as the Zangazur Corridor. They want to attach uh, Nakhichevan, which is another Azerbaijani-stated land on the west side of Armenia, to Azerbaijan, which is on the east side of Armenia. And they wanted to take the whole bottom part of Armenia, cutting off the only open border, which, believe it or not, is Iran, and, uh, and everybody else is a closed border around Armenia. So that when that was going on, the, the threat was high and I was there in Armenia and uh, it was obvious that nobody wanted to go south of the city or at least the certain areas that, that were in jeopardy. And then out of the blue, Nancy Pelosi and some senators flew down to Armenia unplanned. Nobody knew about it. They came in. And they stood ground and they said, uh, America is with a young democracy like Armenia, and we're here to protect the democracy. We don't want to see any bloodshed. There is always a resolution through discussion, you know, think words, basically. But those words meant something because uh, somehow the, the attack was uh, put at bay. So now what happened is Azerbaijan somehow 
knew that they couldn't just plan out attack Armenia. That would cause too many problems uh, for them. And uh, they went back to the enclave. At this point, the, their whole goal is to take half of Armenia away. That was pretty much clear from last year's speeches of uh, uh, Aliyev, which is the president of Azerbaijan. He basically declared that half of Armenia or all of Armenia is old Azerbaijan land, which is, I don't even understand how people buy this, uh, you know, propaganda. When anybody does any type of history, they see that Armenia is an ancient world and, you know, an old tribe and old people they have been there forever and they've been going through kingdoms and wars and, you know, they've had land from coast to coast and then now they have this small little lot of land, which, which the Azerbaijanis have their eyes on it. And they, they claim that the, it was never Armenia and uh, so forth. So because of that, the, uh, the president of Armenia or prime minister of Armenia, Nigol Pashinyan, he's, he somehow pulled back from the whole Artsakh issue. And at first, all of the Armenians in the diaspora were very upset. And they, a lot of them are still are that he turned their back on it. But at this point, what was happening was that Azerbaijan was using the Artsakh issue as a, as a bargaining tool to try to uh, squeeze Armenia into getting half of Armenian lands. Nikol Pashinyan realized that if he stays out of this whole trilateral discussion and let's makes them focus on the people of Artsakh and speak to people from Artsakh as representatives there, because they, are, they all have their own government. You know, Artsakh from 1994 on, when they basically got their sort of independence, for 30 years, they built everything like a normal country or normal, you know, city would with within their own parliament and their own education system, their own hospitals, every everything on their own, uh, with the help of obviously Armenians from all over the world that gave money and, you know, supported them. But they have representation. And now the voices of Artsakh need to be heard. The people from that live in the region need to be heard. And I think that's the discussion here. The As long as Aliyev doesn't see them as people that have any rights, this is going to continue until some, some kind of international power or court system holds them liable for uh, human cri uh, crimes against humanity or war crimes. And until then, we're waiting. We're not holding our breath because it's day 60 now of this blockade. And the blockade basically stops any any travel from back and forth and any type of goods that can come into the to the city like food and this is middle of the winter for them so and then also azerbaijan has control over gas electricity petrol that gets sent to that region and they cut it off they cut off gas and electricity in the middle of the winter so people are cold uh, after the last war they they had one over back most of the forest land, so people don't even have a chance to go cut wood anymore from the forest and burn it. I mean, it's a it's a disaster situation and a huge crisis. And like you mentioned, there is nobody talking about it, especially with the Ukraine war going on and all of the media covering the Ukraine war. This one has been just left high and dry. And it's all the uh, the Armenian Armenians around the world that that obviously are doing their best to get their voices heard. This is Radio Free Galisteo. Great conversations from the Galisteo Basin. Radio Free Galisteo is listener supported. Go to www.
RadioFreeGalisteo.com and click on the red donate button in the upper right-hand corner to become an active supporting member of Radio Free Galisteo. You brought up Ukraine, and as you described the situation, it sounded like Azerbaijan was taking some notes from uh, Russia's playbook uh, with regard to their invasion of Ukraine as well. Just going in, claiming territory used to belong to them, and and just snatching it up. And I'll so, tell you one thing, sorry to cut you off, but Putin took notes of Aliyev before, because when the 2020 war happened, and nobody did anything, and nobody talked about stopping them, and nobody realized that starting a war against a, a, a region or a country that's not even prepared militarily to fight a war, because don't forget, uh, Armenia spent most of their money in the last 30 years building their infrastructure and their education and then bringing their people into a better state of living compared to the last 15 years of Azerbaijan, which they spend more money in their military than the actual fiscal budget of Armenia every year. So they built up their military waiting for a war. It's, it was basically, the war was a David and Goliath war. So everybody knew that Azerbaijan had far more power and military. Plus, on top of that, they brought in equipment like the drones from the Kamikaze drones, the Bayraktar drones from Turkey, which they tried out in Armenia, in, in the Artsakh region. So that was almost like a test ground for equipment. The same goes with the Israeli drones. These people, they were just bringing in equipment to let's try it out on these people, see how it works. Once that war ended and Aliyev wasn't held accountable for his actions and all the crimes that he committed, war crimes that he committed, and he, you know, he took back uh, 70% of those lands that Armenians had controlled for 30 years, that's when Putin knew that basically, uh, well, you know, if, if the West is not doing anything against Aliyev, then they're not going to be able to stop me. Why would I Why would I not do what I want to do? And that's where he got that role. Because Putin played a big role also in the region. If, if he didn't want something to happen to Armenia and those lands, it would have never started. Aliyev would have never attacked. He got the green light from Putin because uh, uh, the administration and the government of Armenia was definitely going towards the West more they they wanted to get out of the the russian grip that they've had over decades in armenia and i guess putin was not happy with that so you know he he turned the corner he turned his uh his eye to on one side and let that happen until he looks like now he's the savior coming in you know but the russian peacekeepers right now are more like prison wardens they are basically blocked off and they're they're doing what the azerbaijanis want them to do so it's it, Armenia right now is left alone. There, there's nobody there that can help them uh, on the ground. The UN and uh, all of these people are now talking about sending, you know, um, whatever you want to do, watchers or recover, uh, you know, they, they record the stories and stuff. But that's, you know, they send that in every time there's a genocide that's going to happen so that they can, they can record it and then say, oh, this is what we saw, but they can't stop it. So it's almost like, we're seeing this grow into a, a potential genocide that's going to probably happen in the next few months. So the observers, basically all they're doing is uh, creating a, a record for after the fact as opposed to just ending the issue right now. Peter, 
how can people find this web series? How and where can they find this web series? Well, the web series is available on YouTube. Uh, all you got to do is type in the desire to live. We have three full seasons. The third season was done after the, uh, the, the feature documentary film was made. So it's the newest uh, films that we have. And altogether, there's over there's almost 40 episodes. Every episode is about 15 to 20 minutes long. And uh, it's a non non narrative documentary series where you don't even you don't even know there's a journalist there or there's somebody else. It's just it's just the people that live there telling their stories, experiences, struggles, day to days, you know, from simple things to uh, their sheep going missing to uh, a woman talking and retelling the story of their last moments that he spoke to her son before she she found out that he died in the war. There's a, there's a lot of emotions in, in every story, and these are stories worth telling because uh, they haven't really had voices and uh, no one really knows anything about them. I feel like the website or the web series itself does that justice for sure with everything that we've covered if they just go in on YouTube and type in The Desire to Live and they can watch any one of the episodes from all three series and they get a sense of what, what we're doing. And the film itself, obviously, still just finished off the festival circuit. It's not available online yet because uh, we're trying to get it into one of these major platforms for streaming and continue on uh, spreading awareness through that uh, road. Um, but we'll see. I might have some kind of a pay-per-view Vimeo thing going on. I'm not sure yet. And then the, uh, the, we have new films. You know, they're all on standby right now because of the blockade. There's three films that are all in post, but uh, we can't finish them because there's no electricity and there's nothing to finish to move around, even with cars to travel. There's no gas in the cars. You know, 60 days. We're talking about a serious amount of time. I think about it when I. I drive for uh, five days and I got to fill up my car. You know what, what it would mean if I don't have access to gas for, for even uh, two weeks or three weeks, let alone 60 days now. And then, of course, food. There's no food there. Everybody's rationing food. Um, you know, it's just, it's just such a nightmare for, for them. But yet their will is there. You know, you watch some of the stuff you, we film and document and almost every person is just talking about hope and and the potential of peace in the future for their grandchildren or their children i mean they're 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 very strong people i have to say the people from Artsakh are you know they're they're it's the armenian highlands you know they lived in high ground it's robust land it's not easy to live there but they've lived there for centuries and they, they don't know anywhere else to live so you know th this is the story of these people well, we'll make sure we uh, put links to the web series along with the, this podcast so that people can uh, go check that out after after listening to the interview. You mentioned that uh, you have support from uh, Armenians all over the world. Uh, the United States, of course, has a, a significant Armenian population. And, you know, I, I hesitate to, to mention, but the Kardashian family, obviously, they have that history as well. Have you seen any support or what kind of support have you seen from the American Armenian community? Well, you know, I, I, everybody is doing their best. Uh, some people know how to do things and some people kind of uh, scream and shout and get angry, but then get stuck. There's definitely a lot of organizations are doing a lot of good work. For the Armenians and everybody does their part. 
The only issue that I've always encountered with the Armenian community in, in America, even or even in California, which is probably the biggest one uh, from all of them, is that they don't seem to grasp the idea of the power of media yet. They haven't figured it out. They, so they don't really invest a lot of money in films or entertainment or any th- type of storytelling, which, which always tends to fall in the independence hands like me and obviously others that are independently doing whatever they can to make this work. I mean, I financed, financed this whole thing by myself. After two seasons were out, I started a GoFundMe campaign and I did get, was able to collect over $20,000 from the people out there that were willing to, you know, they watched it, saw what we were doing and they were giving. But we haven't really, I've never really significantly got any big funds from any of the major rich Armenians in, in the States. And that's, that kind of saddens me a little bit, but doesn't stop me. But yet that is kind of like the story of everybody uh, nowadays. Everybody's trying to decide where they want to spend their money and stuff. And a lot of Armenians spend it in organizations that are there, that are providing either uh, food or they go to the more traditional roads of you know donating. And I, and I feel that they miss the boat when they can't basically invest in production companies or media agencies that promote the story. Because I feel like that is probably the most important way of, of getting uh, things to change is to tell the story. And you're listening to Peter Balwanian, who is the producer of the documentary film, The Desire to Live. Peter, as we get ready to wind up, your final thoughts on the film, the web series, and what's happening over there right now. My immediate, immediate focus is definitely to spread awareness through the film to get this blockade lifted. That's really the immediate danger right now for the people over there. Once we get that blockade lifted, then I still continue trying to tell the story of what's been going on there because I feel like it's just it's just going to get worse if there isn't a major change. So at this point, my job is just to spread awareness and hope that people stand up and say, this is not just, what can we do? Maybe communicate it. Every country, you know, there's politicians, obviously, you communicate with your representatives and tell them that to push to sanction, to change, uh, whatever they have to do to put pressure on the Azerbaijani government and basically stop the way they treat Armenians and the people in that region and the hostilities. We have to be able to figure out a way to live in peace side by side. I mean, it's as simple as that. Armenia has been ready to live in peace for a long time, but for some reason, there's always this threat looming over them from the Azerbaijanis and from the Turks. It helps if everybody just understands what happened in history so that we don't repeat itself again. But when you deny it, the problem continues on. Sage words. You've been listening to Peter Balanian, the producer of The Desire to Live, a documentary feature film that we've been discussing for the past half hour. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. And thank you for your listeners for uh, putting some time out and trying to educate themselves with this with this story that probably they've never heard before in their lives. No, in fact, and I, I really appreciate you sharing it with us. That was Peter Balwanian, the producer of The Desire to Live. For Radio Free Galisteo, I'm John Shannon.